my God, why haven't we evolved past the need for war? And why didn't we do it like literally thousands of years ago after we developed language? There is no reason anymore that we should be trying to solve problems with violence. And we still are. And we are to this day. And when I think about that, that literally just blows my mind. It is just an insoluble problem. We have no basis for still hitting each other on the head with rocks and sticks, as we were doing 150,000 years ago when we could not resolve our issues. So I guess part of when I write about war is what I want to highlight is not just the futility of it, like what's the point? (laughs) What are you trying to accomplish? But just really, really highlighting that every war novel is an anti-war novel, because the more you read about it, the less justified and reasonable any conflict becomes. Because supposedly we're intelligent creatures. There is always a point at which we can stop before life is lost, and no one ever does. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 93 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me as always is my co-host, the Chewie to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn. How you doing, MJ? I am great. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. And if you want to support that lovely human being, go pick up her books. We got Among Thieves, this little beauty right here in hardcover and if you want it to be the same size go pick up thick ass thieves in paperback it's perfect great combo thanks uh thanks saga but if you want (laughs) if you want a fun adventure full of hatchets and whores and all that lovely stuff because i haven't said that in a while but it is a (laughs) fantastic impressions of the book (laughs) (laughs) there's no romance there is some finger grazing, and there's a lot of fighting and a lot of swearing, and it is a great time, and you're going to love it as well. Uh, You can check out the latest happenings for my debut novel, Mushroom Blues, which is out on March 19th. Uh, You can go check out the map reveal. You can go check out chapter one on Before We Go blog as well. I just launched the merch collection for Mushroom Blues where I designed a bunch of stuff, and you can buy it through my website, via Printful, uh, print-on-demand company. So you can get some some cool Fungalverse uh, clothing, some, you know, fanny packs if you're into that kind of stuff. There's a lot of a lot of fun uh, merch over on my website, so go check that out. As well, a quick note for everyone out there listening or watching the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live. So go check out the links in the description to support what we do here. As well, don't forget to subscribe to the FanFatic YouTube channel where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now joining us again is Premi Mohammed, award-winning author of the Void Trilogy, We Speak Through the Mountain, The Siege of Burning Grass, and more. Hello, Premi. How are you? Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> My voice awesome. is going. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's <laughs> like I'm saving um, it for the wisdom. <laughs> a heads up, this is part two of our two-part chat with Premi, so I recommend checking out part one to get to know her better. Today, though, we're donning our swords and armor as we chat about war and speculative fiction. Before we dig deeper into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor. 
Novello is an exciting new publishing and reading platform whose goal is to be the go-to for all things writing and storytelling. Their platform offers an intuitive, user-friendly way for writers to create and share their awesome stories for readers to enjoy, all while maintaining total control over their stories. Everything from the content to cover art and pricing is all controlled by the story's author. Novello also offers social features such as message boards, direct messaging, and a news feed, where you can post updates to your followers. With future plans including support for comics and a marketplace for users to sell other writing-related services, the future of this platform is looking bright. And the best part? It's all available for free. No sign-up fees, no membership, just a growing library of epic tales. Sign up now to bask in the magic of books where you can enjoy tales like Blackwater, an epic adventure by an award-winning author, or Limbo, the door above the lake, a terrifying battle for survival. Whether you're a casual reader or a professional writer, Novello is the place for you. Visit them at novello.com. That's N-O-V-E-L-O.com. And now, enjoy the rest of this episode of SFF Addicts. So, to start off, why is war as... A major part of the human experience and human history, something that you chose to tackle in your work, specifically the siege of burning grass. God, I think I think a large part of it was just kind of the idea that, like, my God, why haven't we evolved past the need for war? And why didn't we do it like literally thousands of years ago after we developed language? There is no reason anymore that we should be trying to solve problems with violence. And we still are. And we are to this day. And when I think about that, that literally just blows my mind. It is just an insoluble problem. We have no basis for still hitting each other on the head with rocks and sticks, as we were doing 150,000 years ago when we could not resolve our issues. So I guess... Part of when I write about war is what I want to highlight is not just the futility of it. Like, what's the point? (laughs) What are you trying to accomplish? But just really, really highlighting that every war novel is an anti-war novel, because the more you read about it, the less justified and reasonable any conflict becomes. Because supposedly we're intelligent creatures. There is always a point at which we can stop before life is lost and no one ever does. Yeah. And we are still doing the things that even chimpanzees do. <laughs> it's like territorial warfare and we're still doing that shit. We're still doing that shit. We're still doing yeah. all of it. We're we're just that is the one thing in human nature that I can't understand why we have not given up, gotten rid of. Um and and it's the worst thing. Like <laughs> So yeah, it's uh it it seems like a particularly rich area to mine because then you can delve really deeply into character motivations and try to make these fictional people come up with reasons for them to still be fighting um or in the case of the siege of burning grass reasons to believe that you can stop fighting uh reasons to believe war can be ended or averted um, and, and that's come up in, in other things I've written too, the idea that maybe, uh, maybe we should not do this or, you know, maybe we can head it off at the pass. 
um, I'm, I'm never presenting warmongers as nice, good people. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> what the Justify warmonger and siege of burning grass was my favorite. <laughs> He's yeah, or a like, cool guy. Like the general's turn, you know, which is narrated by the villain. Uh, I, I wanted to get into that and just really highlight, like, do you hear yourself? Are you listening to yourself? And halfway through the story, he's like, wait, I am now. How did that happen? I'm like, you're a fictional character. Hope that helps. <laughs> Meta. Hope that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of The Siege of Burning Grass, can you give listeners and viewers a, a better sense of what that book is about? I can try. <laughs> so it is a novel. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a bit heavier than the stuff that mostly is coming out this year, but um, a, uh, a pacifist, a well-known pacifist leader, Alifret, is um, wounded uh, by his own side and arrested, also coincidentally, and jailed and told that his chance for freedom is to join a fanatic fellow soldier from his side uh, in infiltrating the enemy city for this endless war that's been going on, on and off for generations. Um, and he's told that if he can do so, uh, the mission will be to join up with the pacifists in the enemy city and thereby end the war. Um, and uh, he has to basically go against all his principles to even start this mission because for his entire group, the entire point is they're not going to contribute to the war effort in any way. Some of them take that far enough to be like, you know, if they're cold and they see a uniform jacket on the ground, they won't pick it up. Some of them are slightly less militant about it. haha. But, you know, it's something he has to think about. Is it worth trying to end the war? Is that something that he can do by doing this mission? And, you know, crucially, are they telling him the truth? Yeah, which is totally the crux of the whole thing. What What is the truth and who who is who has it even? <laughs> yeah. Even know How many different truths are there? Like a, yes. a running theme through through the book, too, is that both sides have been told by their leadership that there are different reasons for the various conflicts over the years, including this one. And they're very, very different narratives. Um, and it's it's all predicated on the assumption that the two sides are not communicating with each other whatsoever, which turns out to not even be true. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, Another but, lie. but that's such a <laughs> Another that's lie. Such a reflection of of real world wars where there's mm -hmm. you know uh especially now it's like the in the United States, for example, the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan and how the truth that was um communicated to the public versus the truth of boots on the ground and what the soldiers were experiencing versus the truth of the people who lived in those countries and were being invaded and, and involved in these, these disastrous wars. And then also the enemy combatants, you know, Al Qaeda, what have you, and the truth that they were being told by their leaders, it's all just mm -hmm. so messy. It is messy, so messy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's the case where even like, even a first person narrative, like a person saying, I was there, boots on the ground. Um, they've also just got a version of, of the truth. Like nobody knows the whole story. And you start to read, yeah, like memoirs of people who were in or like were in a command position in the Afghanistan war and stuff. And you start to compare those books and you're like, I, I can't make a coherent narrative out of this. There's like... 10 different narratives 
Mm-hmm. And that's been the case nobody, in nobody war for a really long like, time. Yeah. And nobody had any sense of like, this is a cohesive mission. It's like, yeah. no, everybody's doing many... their own micro mission. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that, again, that's very much what this book is about. And part of Alifred's issue is, you know, history tells us, gives us many, many examples of, you know, thousands of cases where a single micro mission like this turned the tide of the war. Um, I'm even thinking of movies uh, like The Guns of Navarone, right? Uh, just a handful of people just flipping um, the whole narrative on its head because of what they did at a particular place in a particular time. Of course, he hasn't seen the movie, but you know what I mean? It's, um, he's, he's got this idea that, well, you know, if it's happened before, maybe it could happen now. And maybe it's, maybe it's me, maybe it's us. Um, and I don't know, I sure hope so. So hope is kind of what keeps him going, but it's very, very hard to hope in the face of, like we're saying, these fractured narratives about what people are doing and why they are doing it, which suggests that what they do next might not be reasonable or comprehensible to the people around them. Yeah. When you see Alfred right through the throughout the story, really start to kind of break down in a lot of ways uh, internally, right? Because he's <laughs> just forced to question his own principles and and things like that again and again and again. Um, so you've mentioned a few or uh, at least one example so far, but I'm curious, what are some of the other uh, most compelling examples of war depicted in fiction, in your opinion? Um, and on the flip side, are there any like really popular media representations of war that you find to be uh, less effective or even like distasteful? God, probably a lot of both. Um, I guess, well, for the, um, there's, there's just so, there's so much out there. Um, I, I'm not wild about the more like extremely sort of large scale, um, pieces about war, like where you just see the two armies rushing towards each other on the field. And it's kind of hard to individualize what's happening. Or if they just focus on the leaders, the ones giving the big inspiring speeches and, and not focusing on the individuals who are there on the ground or things like that. Um, I always thought Enemy at the Gates, both the book and the movie, uh, were done really well because again, yeah, um, the book is really, really good. It's very, it's very efficiently and gracefully written with just zero sentiment. And somehow they managed to put that in the movie as well. Um, just the, um, again, these, these microscopic stories of individuals who were just aware that they were at a place and at a time where they could just put a thumb on history, kind of. Um, so I thought those were really well done. Um, in terms of spec fic, I really liked uh, a recent series, Matt Wallace's Savage Legion series, because what that focuses on is, um, you know, it's it's epic fantasy, right? It's very big scale. There are these big battles happening, and it does focus for a few of them on kind of the leaders, but mostly it focuses on a group of actual conscripts. So They've been drafted. They they haven't even like forcibly, violently drafted, actually. They haven't signed up for this. They don't want to fight this. Ideologically, they don't want to be there. And they're at very, very high risk, obviously, for desertion. So the leaders have taken every step to make sure that doesn't happen. And that got me to thinking about desertion generally, which like is is actually a ridiculous concept. You know, I don't want to fight and kill people, so I'm going to leave. And then you're going to bring me back and kill me? 
like throughout history, people have had like the, the, the enormous wasted manpower of these hunt and destroy teams that go and find deserters and bring them back and court martial them and kill them. It's just when you think about it, you know, probably you shouldn't think about it. It's just um, it's just the worst aspects of human behavior. So I appreciate that in those novels, the conscripts are treated with um, with a real emotional depth and intensity, and they form most of the main characters. So I really liked that. Um, you know, I've always loved the depiction in, uh, you know, in Orwell's 1984, because you don't really see the war, but something happens there that I also included in Siege, which is that, um, you don't know if your own side is going to fire on you either by purpose, you know, on purpose or by accident in, in 1984, that's actually on purpose because they're trying to convince the populace that this war is still going on. Um, and that it's the other side firing the shells but at the start of the siege of burning grass um alifred just straight up tells them like i happened to notice that the shell that blew off my leg had our flag on it and they're like these things happen it's war so you know kind of that that idea of the necessary fear of collateral damage being used as a control mechanism by the leaders who are perpetuating the war. Like, God, I just hate that. <laughs> you know, but again, very, very, very much kind of on the mind. Um, so yeah, those, those are the big ones that come to mind. Um, I, I read a lot of, not, not very surprisingly, I guess, I read a lot of uh, World War II war literature um, and like resistance and pacifist literature um, while writing The Siege of Burning Grass. So this is one of my few books where I actually threw a bunch of those references into the acknowledgments because usually I don't keep track. This time I had it all um, kind of, you know, at least saved most of it. Um, and just the, the repeated patterns and themes that you saw on both sides of, of like every major conflict uh i was like why why do these patterns keep reappearing why do we not do something different the second world war was not our first rodeo <laughs> like but it was a disaster literally <laughs> by name literally not our first rodeo. yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know why why is this happening and you know what's what's different and and uh i don't know it's um the, the mentality of it, too, seemed to fit a lot of kind of the, the both sides-ism that we were looking at there and, and the use of propaganda and the use of military intelligence and the knowledge that as soon as you get out of World War II, you've got the Cold War. And in a sense, that that being kind of the war that didn't end for like years and people kind of stopped paying attention to it, like... The Cold War is still a war, and many areas in the world were still suffering conflicts based on that. You know, Southeast Asia and the Middle East and, and South America and, you know, the the, the lineups and, and the blocks and I'm allied with so-and-so and I'm allied with so-and-so. You're all assholes. It's just, um, which, of course, you can't really... <laughs> You can't really say that to the people that are trying to protect capitalism and, and the Western way of life, but like uh, everybody thought what they were doing was being done for the right reasons. And they thought that their reasons were so right that 
um, that people's lives were a reasonable price to pay for it. And, you know, that, that makes for very compelling fiction, but it's also very frustrating, you know? And it's also very frustrating that, that we are still living in the echoes of the cold war today. Uh, the fact that there are just so many things that, that we take for granted, but, you know, we were on the brink like many, many times over the course of, uh, history, but specifically the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the cold war was kind of like a forever war. And there's this one book called the forever war by Joe Haldeman that I think is really, really worth, uh, checking out, which uses time dilation, uh, via, um, you know, like faster than light travel as a, as a way to comment on the perpetual nature of wars, specifically in reference to America and versus communist, the Soviet Union. And, you know, he's like, he fought in Vietnam and he witnessed firsthand, but he also saw like the effects of being on the ground and the effects of what was happening back home. And you mentioned propaganda and propaganda is huge when it comes to war. And I think it's an, it's an effective tool in it's an effective tool for governments, but it's also an effective tool for fiction writers to be able to Mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, fiction itself can almost be a form of propaganda. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Um, Soviets knew that the Russians all knew that they knew they they were very, very they were very gung ho on it. There (laughs) were, you know, the, the purges of, of intellectuals and poets and writers and, and composers even like, Oh, that's seditious classical music. Uh, and the uplifting (laughs) of people who were (laughs) transmitting the correct messages, like absolutely fascinating stuff. I read way more about the gulags than, no, I I have in my life. I actually, this, you know, unfortunately I'm one of those world war two history guys. So 99% of this was not new for me, but, um, getting deeper into everything while a very, very depressing task, (laughs) um, (laughs) was, was useful for this book. What I was seeking out this time, particularly was kind of those first person, um, narratives, like, uh, if you, if you survive the siege of Leningrad, I want to read your book, that kind of thing, or things about, um, I read a couple of, of memoirs by people who were, who had been like tank operators or gunners or, or things like that to get, uh, to get those details right. And, you know, you see that it's always, you know, the civilians who suffer, it's always the, the young guys on the ground who are suffering and it's animals who are suffering and, and the actual landscape itself. I think, um, you know, China Mayville's The Scar. So that's like the, the second book in the Bass Lag series. And The Scar is all about that magical war that ruined like the entire ocean floor. Like, and the literal scars that, that are yeah. left upon the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Literal. Like this is not a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. The scars of war. There it is. It's over there. You can see it. It's like some <laughs> photos of, of, uh, Hiroshima or yeah. uh, Nagasaki after after the atomic bombs were dropped or yeah. Tokyo or uh, even in, in Germany, like cities like Dresden and Dresden Hamburg. after the firebombing and after, stuff after the firebombings. Yeah. Like or, or looking at like photos yeah. of the front where it's like, you know, this was previously a field and now it's just mile after mile after mile of like mud. There's not even yeah. any grass left. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's it's always it's always very, very ugly. Um, and I guess my other thing too was, um, because I was also interested in it kind of being like a, a 
magical espionage novel, I don't really get down to much of the fighting. So this isn't a book written on the front. This is people who are away from the front with a little bit of survivor's guilt um, or, you know, a desire to be on the front killing people, which is just frankly unhealthy, um, you know, but uh, as as quasi intelligence officers, as spies, it may be the case that you're killing millions of people by your decisions and by your actions. It's just you're not killing them directly. So there's there's that to think about uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, a, I mean, you mentioned the gulags already. Um, if anyone wants to read like an extremely depressing, but very like thoughtful uh, sort of like biography, autobiography about the gulags, the, the gulag archipelago by yeah. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. Is unbelievably powerful, but um, mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like the the a lot of the people who were in like the the soviet mechanism or like the nazi mechanism you know these individual people uh especially in positions where they're not directly interacting with warfare like you said there might be instances where a single decision that they made or a single paperwork that they signed resulted in you know thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people dying you know and and it's pretty insane but from your perspective, like when it comes to writing warfare and speculative fiction, do you think that there are aspects that can benefit from being less realistic than others? Yeah, kind of. Well, I mean, particularly in the case of, of fantasy, where so much fantasy kind of defaults to like, for some reason, the same sort of, yeah, like we were talking about sword and sorcery kind of uh, Lord of the Rings, it's it's like what N.K. Jemisin talks about, um, like that factor X that's in speculative fiction. And, and when you choose what it is, so in fantasy, maybe that's magic. Um, you know, in sci-fi, maybe that's like we were talking about, uh, like time travel or, or time dilation or cryo-freezing or some world-ending weapon or something like that. Factor X, um, whatever you choose to add to your work to make it speculative, that should affect and permeate the whole thing, kind of. So when I think about war and speculative fiction, I think this is a case where uh, you can go worse than a nuclear bomb. This is where you can look at the worst that humanity has done and go one up from that if that's what you choose. Or, you know, again, go smaller than that and, and look into what people are choosing to use for warfare and what they are committing wars over. So, you know, maybe a war over magic, maybe a war waged with magic, like in Terry Pratchett's uh, Sorcery, you know, where they're fighting over the future of magic and magic users, um, you know, or in sci-fi, you've got things like those planet cracker weapons, um, things that we currently can't do and frankly shouldn't be trying to, but I'm pretty sure somebody out there is like, Probably fucking Elon Musk or something. I don't we know. We shouldn't be aspiring um, <laughs> to like a Death Star or anything like right. that. Yeah. But, you know, it's um, this is something that speculative fiction does try to do is we, is we take the real world and then we say, um, what if we could write a story that was not this, but was next to this so that we can look at it and explore our ideas about it um, in a way that makes you think about the idea rather than about the reality? 
So I'm not saying, you know, that's that's what all speculative fiction tries to do. It, this was definitely more the case in like the 60s and 70s where people were just writing premise stories where nothing happened. They just explained the premise. But it is still important. It's re- it's still it's still very important. If you've got a mage that can cast a spell that can kill everybody in a country um, and you choose to write about that in your book, how's that going to look? There's a lot of decisions to be made there. Um, are you on the side of the mage? Is this a country full of people that are trying to kill your people? Is this a country full of collateral damage? Is this, you know, are these hostages? Did your government make a threat and now it has to make good on it? Have they threatened to blow up your people? Um, have they got a different type of magic? Have they got access to something you want access to? Have they got access to something that only they have access to and, you know, you want to coerce them into having it? It's, um, you know, there's there's so many narrative decisions to make there. And it's all so much about what do you want to highlight? Do you want to highlight the cruelty? Is this a grim, dark story? Do you want to highlight the hope or or people helping each other or the fact that people dissolve instantly into factions? Like, um, you know, it's like in, um, how do you pronounce it? Like Cece and Lou's uh, The Three Body Problem, right? So you've got three books where humanity does fall apart into factions and they all start to fight each other about this oncoming alien threat, uh, the Trisolarians, right? Um, Trisolarians? Trisolarians. Trisolarians, I think, yeah. For three books, you never actually see these aliens. You never meet them. You don't know what they look like. Um, You never communicate directly with them. You only communicate around them, basically. And it's humanity that is doing this to itself, I think about that a lot, probably, you know, at like odd moments at three in the morning when I wake up and just like freak out. But, um, you know, what's 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 that telling us? What is that forcing us to think about in terms of human nature when we would rather look away? Um, Is it a case of humanity is always going to pull together against a threat? We're definitely not. We've already seen that. We can't even pull together to like the idea of a one world government is absurd. Even right. even governments cooperating yeah. is absurd. It's not happening. It's not going to happen. It's um I, I included that so in in my trilogy, my my debut trilogy. So beneath the rising, a broken darkness, and void ascendant. Um, there's kind of a major incident at the end of book one, and then at the start of book two, we're told that instead of governments coming together to provide support and maybe research what happened and come up with um, defenses and monitoring to figure out how to prevent this from happening again, maybe. Everybody's gotten extremely suspicious. There have been a couple of nuclear weapon exchanges. Um, Nobody trusts anybody. Like clandestine intelligence is up 800%. Places have fortified their borders. Everybody just sucked in like a turtle into their shell and now they hate and mistrust everybody and as i was writing that i'm like this isn't really what would happen would it yeah it kind of would though it probably kind of like, would or <laughs> or maybe yeah <laughs> well there's something interesting i want to touch on that i feel like uh it would definitely is is explored in in siege um where you know you you see people at least not necessarily boots on the ground because like you've mentioned it's not uh, you're not on the front um but you see people on both sides uh you know of your fictional war people of both societies um what if any responsibility do you feel like 
sci-fi fantasy writers should have in kind of humanizing both uh, sides or combatants on both sides. Uh, is there harm done when a fictional war is presented as a simple battle of good versus evil? Or is there space for that? Is it kind of an it depends? Like, what's what's your take on I, I still I still find myself landing on it does kind of depend. I mean, we have all read Lord of the Rings and probably internalized a lot of Lord of the Rings. And, um, you know, that's not presented as a case of, you know, you should definitely have sympathy for the orcs or whatever, because they were just made that way. That's something that the reader will either have or not have. So I think the author's responsibility is to present their story in the way that sounds best to them, because we have no control over the reader. The reader's just going to bring whatever baggage they have with them. They're just going to roll it right in on its little wheels and then unpack it as they read. And the people that want to uh, sympathize with the bad guys, so-called, and and put themselves on their side are always going to. It doesn't matter what the author puts on the page. It just does not. It's always the reader. These are the people who go onto social media and say, yes, I happen to think that if you do enjoy Stephen King books, there is something wrong with you because that means you enjoy murder and you support murderers and torturers and serial killers. These people are out there. We've all seen them. They are being completely sincere. I can't control who reads my books. I just want to present the story that I want to present. But in this particular case, what I also wanted to present was the people at the bottom, like the civilians and the people who are fighting the war, um, have been told what narrative to believe. And unless they're presented with a different one, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing. And there's no reason to, I guess paint them as being, you know, evil or unreasonable if you also know that they can't be fully informed. Um, you know, again, the people of the future are going to look back at us and be like, what incredibly fucking evil people. They kept pumping carbon dioxide into the air, even though they knew it was bad starting in like 1895. You know, like we're still doing it. We're the bad guys. <laughs> so... <Yeah. laughs> but that's something that's something that's really interesting about the Seed of Burning Grass, though, is like the boundaries between um, like moral righteousness and, and, and sort of like which sides view which people or, or which armies or which societies as as bad and how they perceive themselves is so interesting because of the way that you frame it. Like you've mentioned the the majority of characters in the siege of burning grass are not direct or willing combatants in the war. So from your perspective, like how do non-combatants and civilians play into stories about or featuring war and how that reflects on, on perhaps one of the aspects of real wars that I think is most often overlooked or completely ignored, which is the civilian cost, the cost of innocence versus these are the amount of people that fought in the war and died. Like these are soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like the statistical um, kind of, I wouldn't say inconsistencies, but the statistical ignorance regarding yeah. 
the who the deliberate to be involved yeah who ignorance. wanted to be involved yeah. in this fucking war versus who yeah. was just a casualty of it yeah see and i really wanted to focus on that i i included that at the start too so for instance alifred's prison is actually a school that's been repurposed after the children have been evacuated we assume we hope um this was something that uh, I came up, you know, years ago when I was reading about uh, World War II and and particularly like the the Russian advance. So if they were in an area where they thought they were going to have like German fighting, um, this isn't even a case where we think of like the collateral damage to civilians as the civilians' lives. It's like the civilians' lives later. Because what they would do is they would go in, set fire to people's barns, burn up all the hay so that the German horses would have nothing to eat, um, kill their livestock and throw mud on it to, you know, to spoil the meat so that the Germans would have nothing to eat, and then march away thinking, job well done. We have taken away these resources from the oncoming enemy. Meanwhile, right. it's not, it's the not Russian the peasants... Lives. It's the Yeah, the Russian peasants are sitting there like, the fucking What? Because um, this was a cost of the war that they were probably not expecting. Um, And just this idea, this repeated cruelty, like, you know, we're going to blow up the bridge with our own men on the other side just to make sure that not one single enemy soldier can get across. This repeated, repeated, repeated idea of we, the leaders, are smarter and better than you. So we have started this war. A, and B, we are the ones who get to decide what's a sacrifice, not you. So, you know, if you run away from being a sacrifice, we'll just follow you and kill you to make sure that it worked. Um, If you try to protect or hoard your grain so you can feed your children, we'll just kill you and we'll take the grain. And, And just reading about this happening again and again and again, and everybody doing it, thinking that they were doing the right thing, the smart thing, and the thing that would win the war, um, it eventually does something to you. And I thought, you know, we don't get to hear those Russian peasant stories. We just get to see, um, you know, the report afterwards from the sergeant or whoever was like, yep, mission accomplished. We burned those barns and then we salted the fields. Um, and the enemy is not going to get anything. And then we left. So not even a remark about the people that lived in the village, because they don't matter. And when you, again, when when you read back through the histories of villages that went out of their way to feed and shelter wounded soldiers, um, you know, again, if you read War and Peace, which... Um, it's just a, a obviously a big book, but you know a fantastically absorbing and beautiful story about that interaction between like the nobles and and the you know the conscripted men and the the enlisted men and the people in the villages who were like, I have nothing, I have a hovel, but there is a convoy of wounded soldiers coming through, so yeah, I'm going to clear off my kitchen table and let this young wounded soldier recover in my house. Um, and just the those bright moments of humanity from people that have been destroyed and oppressed by their own side and the so-called enemy, uh, and, and when the higher-ups simply don't care, I thought, okay, let's turn the spotlight a little bit. Let's turn it away from the people making the decisions and turn it onto the people who are the subject of those decisions, um, whether or not the higher-ups realize it or not. <laughs> right. They actually, so you see the actual impact uh, in a way mm-hmm. that those higher ups uh, don't or don't care. Often. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was care. actually one of the best uh, aspects of the miniseries uh, Band of Brothers, uh, which is what 
some of like the like the, the I think the second one was called like the Pacific, um, and it didn't really go into this as much. But in Band of Brothers, something that was really fascinating was obviously this is a very core cast of of characters who are all soldiers. But the thing that was most uh, compelling about what they were going through was the ways in which they reacted to the people and environments around them and the people that they met along the way, you know, like going through countries like France and Belgium and, and those small bright moments, those character moments that really stand out or when they arrive at the concentration camp and the interactions that they have and the horror that they're witnessing seeing these Jewish people in the concentration camp. Those are the kinds of things that, that really stand out because it's like, it's intimate. And I think war stories really benefit from intimacy as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, not to heart, not to harp on, on Lord of the Rings again, but like you were saying Mm -hmm. earlier, it's like big battle. And and, and here's, here's, but that's the example. Yeah. And it's like and it's like here's Theoden and he's giving his big speech but you don't really yeah. get any perspective on any of the individual soldiers other than uh Eowyn our or, main characters or Mary yeah. <laughs> or like the main characters yeah. it's like everyone else is just kind of just kind of uh set pieces on this giant yeah. chessboard you know See, and, and that's so I think why the intimacy is really beneficial in that sense yeah and that's why when i was doing my research this time i started to seek out those first person narratives because like for instance you'd read about you know you'd read the first person narrative like the story you know 30 pages or whatever and then you go to the history book and realize those happened at the same time so the history book is saying you know the general sent his report and the report said um division 516 went down the hill and engaged the enemy. Okay, well, Division 516 was a 1,000 soldiers. There was a village in the way. There was also a creek. Um, And we don't know what happened to any of these people, how many people died, what was destroyed, um, you know, who was killed, who was tortured, who was captured. No, Division 516 moved. That's all we know. And it's not until you read the story of, like, the tank gunner who was like, let me tell you (laughs) how this looked. Boy, boy, howdy, when that when that unit started moving, I looked at all the individual faces and here's what I did and here's what I was told to do. And then here's what happened. And then my leg fell off. And just like it's um, it's that intimacy. It's like you said, like because all the history books for decades have just shown it from like the 10,000 foot view. So all we see are these smudges moving across the landscape. We tell ourselves these aren't real people. Nothing's really happening. It, it is like a chessboard. It's it's not really real. So you'll see that a version of chess actually comes up several times in Siege, you know, on purpose. Because Alfred is very, very, he's just very touchy about the fact that nobody else seems to remember that this game, you know, in, in the world of this book, like chess itself, comes from battle games, comes from people saying, you know, here's a pawn, literally a pawn. I'm just going to move it here. And, and, you know, let it get knocked off the board. Because <laughs> you're dispensable. Yeah, because you're dispensable. <laughs> well, when we're yeah, and that's, that's not a dirty word to the leadership. They're, they're yeah. like, dispensable no. is a, it's no, just it's, a vocabulary it's word. It's, it's just statistics. Say, yeah, yeah. It's the ruthless yeah. calculus of war, right? That they, yeah. they'll always talk about. <laughs> ah, what? Yeah, yeah. I've heard that in so many, like, war <laughs> things that you've watched or whatever. Yeah, the but that, again, war. that's the thing where they're like, you know, in the movies and stuff, even, you'll hear them talking to each other like, oh, give me two of your divisions. Again, that's like 150 guys or whatever. These are people. Yeah. 
These are real people. And you can't just talk about them in the group sense like that. Um, but they do. And that's, that's the most part of the media diet that we've consumed unless we go out and try to find something zoomed in closer to the ground. Yeah. Well, that's, I want to talk about the, uh, the intimate view in one more like facet. Um, because I do think that, you know, when you're trying to describe a war, right? Like there are parts where you will need to zoom out a little bit so that mm -hmm. you can kind of ground the reader, uh, whether, you know, you're zooming out in reality or zooming out via what communications are being distributed that may or may not be true. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's your recommendation for writers looking to kind of balance the action scenes of war or those kind of larger like set pieces right with that kind of more honest depiction of war and the toll that it can take and you know kind of that the the part of the real violence that happens right on the individual level I don't know. I guess the way I I keep thinking that I come at it these days is we're not you know, or we, I, 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 I'm not writing a book about a war. I'm writing a book about a character uh, and the journey he takes from the start to the finish. So where I zoom out, I zoom out to show how that affects my character. Um, and where I zoom in, I zoom in to show how that affects my character because I'm, I'm interested in writing about Alifret. He's, He's my guy. He's he's the reason the book exists. And he's the perspective that I've chosen to illustrate the larger conflict. So if I zoom out so far that I can't see him, I have not done my job. Like, he's who I want the reader to stay with and take through the book. Um, I think the analogy that I used uh, earlier was, um, you know, it's, it's like a charm bracelet. So the, the book is the bracelet. The book is the bracelet. And every individual scene that happens is a charm. But the charm has to have something that hooks it onto the bracelet or else it's just sitting there. Um, and it also has to be in proportion, right? So if I throw in a 35-page scene about people fighting on the ground and all the carnage and, and you know people killing each other and the different weapons they're using and blah, blah, whatever... That doesn't hook to the bracelet. It's not a it's not a charm anymore. That is like a hockey puck. And it's sitting there and it's got no connection to the bracelet. I just I just want it to go where it goes and for everything that hangs off it to hang off it for a reason. So the people that are encountered, they affect my character, they limit his decisions, or they cause consequences for the decisions he's already made. Um, they, they add to the stakes, or they remove from the stakes, or they change what he knows about himself, or about the world, or about the conflict, or about them. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be there. So I guess that would be my advice, is, is follow, follow your people through the story. Don't make the story smudge them out of existence or or anonymize them you know yeah yeah I that's love why that, um, that analogy yeah what's the <laughs> what's the movie uh platoon with mm -hmm. oh what's the name of that actor um i completely forget i haven't seen Anyways, platoon for like decades i know i haven't seen platoon yeah, yeah. either it's, so i'm gonna go i can see his face yeah. though yeah yeah but um that movie is so good because everything that happens is a reflection on the character when when fights happen when battles happen 
you see it through the eyes of of that soldier and the ways in which the the tolls of war weigh upon him and and that's why it's so effective because you have mm-hmm. that direct connection to uh cause and effect yeah and how that plays out and how the it's eyes changing of who is yeah just, yeah like changing and realizing how horrific yeah. this situation is well, so and I think it's, it's really you know, like, as soon as you said that, that made me think right. of Das Boot, which should be the most boring goddamn movie mm-hmm. in the world. And it's like 4,000 years <laughs> long. But every time I watch it, I am just riveted because I am invested in what happens to these people. You know, at five minutes in, I'm like, oh, there's no reason to, you know, get attached to any of these people. Um, but then you find that you are. And that's why you keep watching. It's got nothing to do with the submarine. <laughs> It's got everything to do with people's individual stories and and what the plot is doing to them and how it's just beating on them <laughs> to the end of the movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think I think that's when war in fiction is most effective is yeah, when Yeah, I agree. The things that are happening are in service of the character yeah. where the the circumstances are bringing about change in their perspectives and how they view war as a concept. And and yeah, like when you dehumanize it, when you pull out too far and you can't even see the individual people, then that's when it becomes, uh, that's when it becomes distance. And that's when you become desensitized yeah. to the realities of it. And I think that, that's, that's why when it so starts to feel, wars, yeah, that's when it yeah, starts to feel so academic or historical just, rather than fiction. Yeah. Because yeah, then, exactly. then again, you're reading the textbook that was like, this unit moved across the hill. And you're like, we mm-hmm. zoomed out too far. Like, now it yeah. reads like a textbook. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, like sorry a, I cut like off. A, yeah. Oh, like a documentary <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. It just feels too... Or even, 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 you know, like a lot of mainstream news where they're propagating stories that are meant to, in some cases, purposefully humanize and in other cases, mm-hmm. purposefully dehumanize. Dehumanize, and that's yeah. The, that's the power of story. And, and that's, yeah, that's too. the power of story. Yeah. That's the power of knowing who your viewer or your reader is going to attach to and you encouraging that attachment or discouraging it. Like particularly for me uh, with Siege, um, the, the, the antagonist, I guess, Kudur, who represents everything that is, um, that, that Alfred has fought against since the start of the war, and also in many respects, everything he's fought against for his whole life, because um, he's not a nice guy. Um, the few moments where I opted to humanize him or have him talk about his past or or his village or his childhood, um, I resented that. I resented that. I wanted to make him less complex, um, but I couldn't, like, stop. So it <laughs> worked so well, though, Preemie, because, like, it... <laughs> made it all the more frustrating to read him because it's like the truth or like the reality of what you're supporting is staring you in the face <laughs> in in so many different ways Alfred's trying to tell you it's hidden in the subtext of so many things that you're witnessing and have witnessed and yet <laughs> and here yet. we are <laughs> so yeah if yeah. you feel any better at no point did I go you know what this door guy I I like this guy okay so, good good yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the whole time I was just like because he's because he's terrible and I like that's that. that's his whole thing <laughs> is the thing I hate most about him is how little he changes is that 
that's why Alifret finds himself running up against not just the brick wall of the war and of upper leadership and of the enemy itself, but of this douchebag that he is traveling with who refuses to budge an inch. And that's why fanaticism is the real enemy in this book. That's why, because people don't change their minds. They have to have their minds changed for them. It's such a huge <laughs> problem, right? Like it, it. Mm-hmm. I feel like it does a really good job. The the dynamic between those oh, two you. characters <laughs> does mm-hmm. a really good job of showing like a that it, that immovability. Yeah, so I say it. It almost feels like utility, which sounds like I'm saying it's it, a message of hopelessness, which it's not. I promise, guys, mm-hmm. read it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> please buy the book. It, it shows that frustration that you. I'm saying mm-hmm. you feel Alfred's frustration, right? Be, mm-hmm. By showing that what feels like futility every time he's mm-hmm. coming up grunts. He's like, this guy's not even in charge. And he's yeah. drunk so much <laughs> of this damn Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like he is yeah. carrying the Kool-Aid with him. And Albert was like, oh, good. You know, now that we've left and he's not under the influence of those deranged uh-huh. leaders anymore, maybe he'll be more reasonable. And Kadura's like, actually, absolutely not. In fact, I'm going to get worse. Um, just so you know. So... <laughs> But that, but that's one of the most fascinating things about war is like even for the people who are so stubbornly attached to their ideals and to their beliefs, war is ultimately a thing of change. It changes everything from the way you described earlier about the physical landscape, the livelihoods and lives of people uh, from civilians to soldiers to anyone within the hierarchy of an army and and the people who resist change the most are usually the ones who end up suffering the least because they are the ones who are inflicting through their, through their stubbornness. They are the ones who are inflicting pain and suffering on other people. Like when you read, Yeah. yeah. When you read like transcripts and stuff from the Nuremberg trials, like, they're all standing there like, we did the right thing. And like the yeah. most toxic idea that they refuse to all let go of, again, all throughout history is the idea that you have to win, that war is something you can win. That it is a Whereas game. in reality, both sides lose and lose and lose and lose and lose and lose. And the word win does not mean anything um, to anybody involved. It only means something in this sort of like metaphysical sense of winning, which is supposed to be a reward. Um, and it just, that's, I think, again, I, I tried to express that in the book, but the idea of winning a war is a genuinely unhinged thing to think. Like, like that is an unhinged idea to have and to base your whole life on and to throw the lives of people at. So I guess those are like my parting words. (laughs) (laughs) War is bad and don't try to win it. (laughs) Yeah. But it's like, that's like the the fallibility (laughs) of, of game theory is like it, it proposes that, that it is all a game and the purpose of most games, all games really is to win or to, get your to achieve your objective and and yeah not to collaborate on a solution just to win to beat the other person yeah yeah you know what is winning communication and that's why we do this podcast (laughs) and that's why we do this there we go good segue all comes back around (laughs) all right well that's it for this mini masterclass and our two-parter with Remy. thank you so much for getting into the group thank you so much for the invite
Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, for anyone who <laughs> contributes to our Patreon at $10 or more each month, you can hear an exclusive reading by Premium from Butcher of the Forest, which is out today. So go pick it up. And when is uh, Siege of Grass coming out officially? Uh, March 13th, I believe. March 13th. Perfect. Something like uh, that. 12th or 13th. I can't remember. Okay. The Tuesday. Working <laughs> the Tuesday. Unless you're in the UK. Sorry. Yeah, then it'll be Thursday. <laughs> uh, Premium, where can folks find you online? Uh, I try to get my website up to date. So that's uh, www.premimohammed.com and uh, Instagram at Premisaurus and on Blue Sky, much, much more these days than Twitter. Uh, and that's just with my website handle. So you'll be able to find me that way. Awesome. Thank you. And you can follow SFFatics on Instagram, Twitter, threads, all of that at SFFatics Pod. You can follow me at Adrian M. Gibson. MJ, what about you? Yeah, you can find me across all the socials at MJ Coon Book or at mjcoon.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter for a free novelette. Also, my cat would like to say hello to Premie's cat because they look like little Hi, twinners. Um, and that's Aww. all. <laughs> and go buy these books so you can support MJ and yeah. Thorin's um, give, ability give to eat. Thorin treats by buying my books. <laughs> Get, give MJ treats. She wants treats also too. Also that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well... Now keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.